Welcome to the Dividend Talk Podcast, episode 173, Dividend Investing with Leo Nielsen. Hey everybody, welcome back to another episode of Dividend Talk. In this episode, we are joined by special guest, Leo Nielsen, who is an author on Seeking Alpha, who will chat to us about his unique investing approach. We will talk about everything from macroeconomics to different sectors to energy um, and his own unique investing strategy. On top of that, we will look at some news of the week and we will answer some questions from the community. So sit back and relax and we'll see you on the inside. Hey, European DJ. How are you today, buddy? Uh, actually, quite good. Uh, come back, of course, from a long week of work. Uh, had no time to do anything. But my portfolio kept nicely growing up right this week. Uh, that's what, that as far as uh, I follow the market this week. But uh, hey, I got actually someone reaching out to me on uh, social media, Derek, because I'm making sometimes a fool of you by uh, making sure you pronounce the names well like like a machine last week so i got quite some uh how is it feedback as well on my pronunciations in uh, uh in english so the challenge to you next time is to call us a, a little bit more out because we're making fun of your english as an irish person but i think sometimes uh the feedback was you should correct me as well yeah but i'm too polite for that you, you look we know dutch directness we know what you're like i just i just let it slide so i'm i'm okay i'm okay with that um it, it is quite hard and i do apologize it is quite hard to pronounce some of these european names particularly with my slang but i do my best um well for instance I, I give you a nice one i often say uh cyclical but it's uh, cyclical and you never tell me that yeah of course uh, but i think you pronounce your syllables and your vowels a little bit differently than, than we do. Yeah. So I, I let uh, uh, a pristine balance sheet instead of pristine, pristine balance. Yes. yes. <laughs> Maybe you're a... the smart ass here. You just <laughs> let, let me look like a fool all the time. There's a few I, I could pick up with, but hey, speaking of Dutch directness, we, I have two, I have two guys to contend with today. Um, we have a guest on the show, um, Leo Nelson. Did I pronounce yes. that right? I did. Nelson, okay, good. Yes. <laughs> We're off to a good start. Um, <laughs> Leo, um, for our listeners, you might give us a brief introduction, um, just about who you are, really. Yeah, well, um, people on Twitter know me as Ed Leonidas, which is, is my name. Um, I've, uh, I'm, people may, may be familiar with my work on, on Seeking Alpha, where I share my investing ideas, macroeconomic outlooks, and similar. And um, I work with uh, Brad Thomas um, on his company, White Mode. I think People may be familiar with him. Um, he also has a company called uh, iRead, which is also on Seeking Alpha, where there's some overlap. So I work with him on various projects. Um, I have also a background in um, um, advising high net worth clients and funds on uh, geopolitics and macroeconomic issues. Um, and um, yeah, as I said, on Seeking Alpha, I'm, I combine all of these things. And Twitter, I use mainly to. Uh, I don't know, share my thoughts, um, post post charts, just um, give people a, a look into my brain, so to speak. Um, 
and yeah that's how i know you guys and i'm really happy uh, to be on the show today so thanks for having me yeah thanks thanks for joining us I'm, I'm really excited for this it's going to give us something a little bit different um we did actually have brad on here uh, maybe six or seven weeks ago um but it's good to have another seeking alpha monster on this show um just looking at some of your articles you you write some quality stuff so i'm, I'm looking forward to picking that brain of yours and um seeing what your journey has been like Fantastic. but before that we usually talk about some news of the week um we have some news here but as the guest is there anything on your mind or that stuck out really in the news this week i mean news wise um i think most people were at least in the us were focused on thanksgiving now people already uh, think about uh, the holiday but i think some of the things that stood out to me is if you look at um european also us manufacturing pmis you know these leading indicators that tell us what companies expect in terms of um, manufacturing growth in this case um we also got uh, michigan consumer sentiment which was down again um another fact factor was you know included in michigan confidence that people expect inflation to remain much higher actually than analysts expected and although you know oil has come down i, I still think um, that these is issues are really something worth keeping an eye on going into next year if you know it is it's pretty much a, a toxic mix of um, elevated sticky inflation the fed that can't yet cut rates because it would probably ignite a second wave of inflation um and meanwhile uh, a weakening economy um, so I think this week, uh, although we didn't get, get that many headlines, was um, pretty much uh, not a clear statement of the economic risk that we are dealing with. Yeah. And how do you look then when you see this news? What do you think then when you when we also know that the S&P 500, if you zoom out, is still, of course, uh, uh, let's say around all-time highs? How, how do you how do you look at that? Yeah, I would say in general. I mean. I think at the end of last year, I started to say, you know, when it came to long, to longer term prediction, I said S&P 500 could, I think it's supposed to be range bound and pretty wide range. I think mid 3000 points to mid 4000 points, which is we are now at the upper bound of that range. Because if you look at the drivers of this rally, it's, um, it's mainly, especially when you look at the impact on earnings, it's um, the magnificent seven like Nvidia, Apple, Microsoft, you name it. And these companies are actually doing quite well. Even if you look into earnings estimates, these companies are just expected, at least most of them, to keep growing by you know double digits in the next few years. And you know, these companies are obviously a very, very big part of the market. And then you have you know smaller companies. If you look at Russell 2000 companies, 40% of them uh, lose money. Um, yeah. So I think it's, um, I mean, most of, people that I advise, you know, they own just ETFs, S&P 500 ETFs, you're fine. And I wouldn't worry about it. Just, I wouldn't try to time the market, but in terms of the risk reward, um, if you don't get a scenario very soon, where just um, the growth allows, you know, the growth rebounds and inflation comes down further, allowing the Fed to actually cut into strength, you know, that would be a utopia. But if you don't get a scenario like that, I think the risk reward for the S&P 500 at these levels is quite poor. I wouldn't say we are going to see 30 to 40 percent sell-off or anything like this it's just i'm very cautious at, at these levels and yeah. really careful when it comes to where do i put my money i'm i'm really looking for outliers in the market instead of just buying the market yeah 
Uh, sometimes I get this feeling like maybe this is one of those de decades again where we will look back and it uh, will feel like a lost decade, like like we had in the early 2000s. I'm 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 always thinking about this a scenario like this. Um, actually, I, I have a, a pinned tweet on my Twitter which says, um, which it shows a picture from the Wall Street Journal. And usually, when when valuations are this elevated, you get, as you said, a prolonged period of subdued um, returns and Another risk is what if inflation stays sticky, right? So let's say you buy just random growth stocks and the Fed keeps interest rates high, you get elevated inflation on a prolonged basis and weak economic growth. I mean, I think you could be looking at pretty poor returns for the next, yeah, maybe even 10 years. So that's something that I'm really looking looking for to find beaten down outliers in certain areas that I trust mm -hmm. in, in an event where returns could mm -hmm. be pretty bad. Yeah. Okay. Um, and, and do you feel the same then? Obviously, S&P 500 is, is US, but what about the European market? Is, is the sentiment similar over here? Yeah, I think, I mean, I would be even pickier in Europe. Um, I mean, some people know I'm, I'm based in Europe, but I don't have any European exposure at this moment. There are some stocks that I'm looking at at an entry if, if they drop, but I mean, if you look, for example, in the Netherlands, um, the AEX index, uh, it mainly consists of, you know, companies with international exposure. So, I mean, I wouldn't say it doesn't matter what our economy does, but it's pretty much um, international companies that focus on the global economy. And then you have Germany, obviously, suffering from deindustrialization risk, you know, elevated energy prices, structural issues. So I would be really, really careful in Germany as well. Um, France is maybe in a better spot. Um, the UK. Uh, Pretty dependent on banking and commodities, so that's an in a market that I think is quite interesting. Um, now, I'm not a big fan of of the big UK companies. I think there are better alternative alternatives in finance and in energy. Um, but I think if you want to invest in Europe, um, the same goes. Like the risk reward is somewhat poor, but overall earnings uh, valuations, I should say, valuations in Europe are are much lower than in the US. So. But it has a reason, obviously, you know, we have structural issues with energy and supply chains and whatnot. But um, there are some opportunities in Europe. You just need to be really careful when you, when you pick these companies. Yeah. And speaking of Germany suffering, our news of the week this week, I don't know if you know the company. Um, it's a company called Bayer. Um, yes, I'm familiar made, with Bayer. Yes. Yeah. And they made that horrendous acquisition of Monsanto all those years ago, which is coming back to bite them. Um, and and this week, they've been ordered to pay 1.5 billion yes. to four plaintiffs. That's 1.5 billion to four plaintiffs. Um, I believe they have in the region of 165,000 people that want to claim off them. So if they're paying 1.5 billion to four, I mean, we're, we're talking trillions of dollars here. Well, uh... I, I think it needs to be seen if they're really going to pay 1.5 billion. I, I, I doubt it's going to be that high. Maybe I'm wrong, but I mean, in general, what, what the situation isn't that great for Bayer, right? I mean, they all have this litigation risk um, above their heads. And on top of this, they have some cyclical issues, right? So agriculture in general has been pretty weak this year. Um, farms in general, the supply chain has just too much product. So pricing and volumes are really uh, biting them in the ass. Um, and that's, that's one of the issues. But I think if they get away with a scratch when it comes to these litigation issues, 
by it could be quite interesting, especially if, if they break up, right? So um, consumer health and, and even the agricultural business is quite interesting from a valuation standpoint. So I always said, I'm actually monitoring them quite consistently because I would be interested in maybe buying the spin-off, the agriculture spin-off. But it needs to be seen, you know, what happens. But if they um, cut costs, you know, slim down management, um, just streamline the whole company, um, I think that could actually bear fruit. Um, and the valuation is, I mean, they have priced in so much weakness, right? Bayer used to be Germany's biggest yeah. company. And now I don't, I think, I don't know where the market cap is, 30, 30 billion or even lower. Um, as I said, you know, it's a high risk play, but I'm, I'm closely watching them. And maybe it, it could be my first European play um, in my portfolio in the next few, few quarters. But yeah, it needs to be seen what the litigation, what, what happens to them. And I think early 2024, they will present a plan to streamline the company which could uh, be quite interesting for shareholders and potential shareholders, I should add. No, so, I mean, for me, as long as this litigation is, is like an invisible hand above the company, uh, I, I would not touch it uh, myself. I mean, I, I own still shares in this, <laughs> in, the, in this stock. Um, but I mean, they pay now, what is it, to three gardeners, uh, one and a half billion. Uh, because these 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 people are horrible sick yeah and but for me it, it just tells you like so a life in new york is worth half a billion in in europe they don't even have cases in litigation so it also tells you what kind of our lives are worth here uh, from that point of view but it's uh it's it's crazy right they settled already for 10 billion before yeah with a uh, but for only for a limited scope then also they tried to find um, a court ruling to to how is it um, decline any potential lawsuit. They mm -hmm. lost that as well. So this is just a major invisible hand. And as long as it's above this stock, and and you get these litigation cases of half a billion, and there are still one hundred sixty-five thousand outstanding. Yeah, then 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 that that I guess the market could see it, or the bearish people would see it as a bankruptcy uh, filing uh, if they really uh, if if they are not able to settle it. Yeah, and that's the question because that seems to be the biggest issue to settle it in in, in the states. Yeah, I mean there are multiple ways to to avoid such a risk. Um, I think but they have not been able to do that because no, this so is already for two I mean, three years. Don't, don't yeah. Also, I mean they they have some claims related to baby powder, and I think. They tried to bundle all these claims in a separate company and just yeah. fell for bankruptcy, which was denied by yeah. a court. So, I mean, it's it's obviously an, an uphill battle. Um, you know, it's court rulings. It's really hard for me to comment on this, but I think I don't think it's going to be as bad as people expect. Um, and you know, on the flip side, I mean, if this works out, right? I mean, Monsanto and what's it, Corteva, they essentially own the seed supply chain. Um, mm. If they somehow manage to you know, avoid the worst of the worst when it comes to litigation, they actually have fantastic assets. Um, from 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 a white mode, you know, if you say this company, I mean, competition is always a risk. But yes, acquisition of Monsanto was was a bad idea in hindsight. But some of the assets that they bought really allowed them to to own big parts of the agriculture supply chain you know really at the start and i think those assets yeah. are just absolutely fantastic now obviously yeah, these court court holdings are a bit risk but if they manage uh, to uh, you know, somewhat limit the damage then yeah buyer could be a very interesting play 
yeah, yeah. It's just just too much unknowns when you've got litigation of that size and magnitude. It's yes, too many. exactly. It's really hard to you know assess how bad could it be, especially you know I'm not a lawyer, um, yeah. and you know I've every been... articles I, I can somewhat make up my mind, but you know as you just said, you know figuring out how bad could it become, it's somewhere between yeah, not I've that bad and bankruptcy, but yeah. I've been in the stock since eighty euros. Yeah, it's now thirty four euro. And at 60 euro, we fall like ah, 10 billion, maybe a little bit more. It can't get worse. It can't get worse. And 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 the opposite is every time true. It only gets worse. So and and by the way, on the other, on the flip side, to your point about the assets, this week I believe the European uh, Commission yes. also uh, voted in favor of 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 using glyphosate uh, uh, and such as well, yes. because they want to put a European ban on it, and it's not happening. So at least it protects the market uh, for these products in this case. So they've been lobbying well. Yeah. So if they can lobby as well uh, in in the states as well for these court rulings, then uh, I could maybe start to become a little bit happy again with owning buyer. Yeah, I think I mean lobbying in, in, in court rulings is, is a bit different, but I think um, I don't think the EU really had an alternative. And if I'm, I mean, I could be wrong, but I I watched the stock on the day of the court ruling, and I don't think mm -hmm. I don't think it was up by one percent or something. It, it was just almost neglectable. Yeah. Um, so I think that was just expected because I mean, the EU bias is so dominant, and these products. I mean, it's really I mean, how how dangerous is glyphosate for our health, right? I mean. I don't know. Um, I mean, if you if you Google, you will find all kinds of opinions. But I think it, it will take take some time until there are alternatives that are, let's just say, better for the environment. Um, but I think obviously there was um, some good news among a wave of bad news for Bayer. Um, yeah. So we will see uh, where Bayer goes. Yeah. Awesome. Um, okay, the, the next section we usually do what we call a rapid fire round. Um, it's really just sometimes to loosen our guests up and to have a little bit of fun and, and to see. So, European DJ will ask you five questions. It will be A or B. Without thinking, you have to give your, your answer. And then at the end of the five questions, you can clarify one if you want. Um, so, we, we see how this goes. Okay, let's go. We'll keep it nice. So, the first one is an easy one. Walgreens or CVS? Walgreens. Good. A frugal but poorly dressed partner or a partner that dresses really nice but puts your budget continuously under pressure? <laughs> Let's go with frugal. <laughs> Being one day Elon Musk or Henry Ford? Um, Musk. Okay. Realty income versus Vichy. Um, <laughs> um, Vichy. Good. And then the last one a hundred thousand annual income until retirement or thirty five thousand annually on social welfare until retirement. Wait, what was the first one? 100k? yeah 100k while you're working and the other one is 35k annually without working can Social i still welfare. work on the site if i get this or do i really no I... you will be you will be sitting on your fence outside uh okay. opening beers well, and throwing I take, the hundred for the hundred yeah yes. <laughs> good 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 anything you would like to clarify um well i really hated this question walgreens or cvs <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> i mean um i didn't um 
I think it was last week I did an article with with Brett and we said um basically I mean Walgreens yeah they have um, growth potential I mean sure I mean the odds are they will cut the dividend who knows but um you, you want to own realty I mean realty income in this case you know which is one of the biggest landlords of um of Walgreens so I, I would own their real estate not uh not the stock itself but yeah I think of the two uh, Walgreens is probably the way to go yeah thanks 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 so then uh, thanks for answering these questions i guess then it's a little bit uh time now to learn a little to learn something more about you and and your investing journey leo so so how did you get started ever in life with investing well i actually i got started roughly 13 years ago when i was i said correctly yeah when i was 15. um i i'm not entirely sure how i started i think it was um because I, I read something about um, which was called uh, Daimler back then. It's now Mercedes. Um, and I thought, well, you know, stock listed car company. And I thought, you know, let's just uh, look into them, see if they're interesting. And I, you know, from day one, I really thought I, I knew how to invest. So, um, and I remember telling my friends on in the first week when I really found out about investing, I said, you know, you can make like one, 1.5. Because on the day when I found Daimler back, you know, Mercedes, um, they were up 1.5 percent and i i figured out if they go up 1.5 percent every day and i could make some i could make yeah. some like a pretty penny um <laughs> but, you know, i was 15 and um you know it, it just evolved from from there um i started i mean i tried all kinds of I mean, we're talking a few few hundreds in the beginning euros and then a few mm -hmm. thousand i started you know i tried day trading i tried um investing in in biotech penny stocks um I, I even use, you know, leverage products like the industry, if you, you know, the ENG turbos and, and sprinters mm -hmm. and, and and all these things. Um, and then at some point, I think when I was a few years later, 18, 19, I, I started to get serious about investing. Um, I had some great mentors in my life um, who really, uh, you know, helped me to see, you know, what, what investing is all about, what to look for when doing research, especially, you know, what I like to call big picture, you know, macro research to really understand what moves a company um but but no stock i should say um and you know when i was 18 19 and it got way more professional um and yeah doing my studies uh, I, I focused a lot on investing um, essentially since since i was 16 um, I've, I've monitored markets every single day and when it got more professional actually uh, helped people manage their portfolios um I did, you know, we, we tried different hedging strategies. We went long certain stocks, short other stocks. Um, and then, you know, when I was close to graduating college, I was, I mean, I did an internship at, at Henkel's Treasury as well. After that, I, I went back to get my master's degree in international business with a focus on supply chains. So that, that's, that had always been my thing, you know, the bigger picture, understanding supply chains and before i graduated i started working for a company that you know advised a high, a high net worth client and hedge funds and that really helped me to understand you know this industry um and we did special projects um and on the side i you know continued to grow my, my seeking alpha account where i just really decided to uh, to focus more on, on, on dividends slash dividend growth um which i really started to focus on i think it was 20 2019 2020 when i invested you know when i started to make more money um so i really had more cash to invest and 
I decided to invest everything in my long-term account. So I think since, yeah, since 2020, that's when I started the dividend portfolio that I have now. I mean, I did dividend research way before that, but since 2020, I've almost every penny that I make invested in, in the in dividend growth stocks. Um, and as I said, you know, on the side, I do Seeking Alpha. I work with uh, Brett on the white modes, on iRead, and we advise high net worth clients on with another company. So yeah, that's pretty much how it started, really uh, just trying trying everything out and just finding my way and really developing a strategy that works that works for me. So uh, 15 is incredibly young to, to start. Yeah, and it wasn't a lot of money. I mean, it's, I think the first stock that I bought, I'm not entirely sure because there are two companies that I believe could be my first stocks, but I think the first one was Deutsche Bank. Um, yeah. Back then was uh, the Euro crisis. And I figured you know, every time when European finance ministers met, you know, banking stocks went up. So I thought, let's just buy <laughs> Deutsche Bank for the next meeting. Um, and I think I invested 100 euros in it. And it was so much. And I talked to my parents about, you know, I really want to, want to invest in the stock market. And said, do you know the risk? And I said, yeah, absolutely. I know everything there is to know about um, investing because I Googled it. Um, <laughs> but I think yeah, it started with, with, with Deutsche Bank. And yeah. I mean, I lost some money on it. And it just kept, kept building on, on, on these experiences. Did your did your parents in, invest? Because I mean, I don't know any fifteen year old that wakes up starting to want to invest. Uh, so there must have been some inspiration close to you. Or, uh, no, my my parents didn't invest uh, at the time. Um, most of my family in general didn't. Um, I think it was just um, you know reading online and and I was always interested in politics. And I think one thing led to the other. If you just monitor markets and. I think I just slid right into it. Um, yeah. And Mercedes, one of the first companies that I I watched. I was I was really a car guy. I knew everything there was to know about cars. I knew every model on the market, and so I, I researched these car companies a lot. And I think it, it's it started there because I mean these companies have to they have public filings, so um, I I think I was looking up some stuff on on Mercedes back then on Daimler, and that's that's how I how it started. Um, but in general. Um, I didn't have lots of close role models, so to say, no, at least not, not in finance. Um, so, so how, well, that, what I'm interested in, because you said you, you, did, pen, you did penny stocks, uh, yes. day trading, <laughs> and then in 2020, you start dividend growth investing, and literally half a year later, it's like everything to the moon, GameStop and everything. How are you able to control your emotions then and really sticking to the dividends? I mean, that's been hard, hard for many investors during that time, right? We saw dividend investors suddenly turning into growth investors. Yes, yes, yes. And th that's a great point. Um, I mean, my day trading years, I mean, it wasn't even that long. They ended way before COVID. But um, I, I actually didn't have a hard time doing COVID. It was surprisingly easy for me because I really decided for myself uh, which strategy I wanted to follow. Mm -hmm. um, and I was really able to stick to I mean. I really, I, I have to admit, um, in 2020, after and you know, when when things went south, I, I invested a lot in, in energy, in industrial companies, just companies that were really beaten down. But yeah, you know, they offered a lot of value, right? But you know, in in, in I don't know six in a six seven eight months that followed, um, these didn't do that. But I mean, they recovered obviously after after the, the pandemic sell off. But um, you know, tech stocks that really you know that was the place to be, and I did feel. I wouldn't say foolish, but I felt like you know I wasn't part of the party. Um, the, everyone was having fun, but me, um, you know, NFTs and and, and, all, and all this stuff. Yeah. Um, 
but you know things quickly change because my thesis even from, from 2020 and that's why i always incorporate macroeconomics in into my decisions i expected you know you will get this this demand rebound after pandemic you know everyone is reopening except for china and you know this will um, cause inflation to surge and you have this energy component as well because energy companies in this case oil and gas companies they didn't produce as much as they used to and production growth rates were actually quite poor so i i figured you know inflation is going to come back and it's going to force central banks um, to hike rates and in early 2021 i think it was even january 1st or january 2nd when the market opened that this rotation started so you saw this, this mm -hmm. big prolonged decline in in growth stocks um like you know arc like kt woods arc yeah. uh, funds and i mean apple and microsoft also growth stocks but you know it's just different but you know they came back there back at all-time highs but all these ultra growth speculation stocks whether it's hydrogen um what's the company space something galaxy space. space or whatever uh richard branson's virgin virgin galactic virgin or whatever galactic, yeah. all, all these companies that everyone was was bidding to the moon um they come down crash like 80 90 percent yeah and during that time my stocks did actually very well you know my energy stocks did they so they, they almost doubled some of them even doubled and you had you know my all these value stocks that i had bought they really came back and really were fueled by this um rotation so since going back to 2020, I, I have outperformed the market. Um, the outperformance has gotten a bit uh, slimmer because of the recent, uh, at least this year's return of growth stocks. Um, but in general, I'm, I'm very happy with my strategy. And I really figured from the start, you know, this is the strategy you are going with. So ignore all the noise. And to this day, I really, I really ignore hyped, hyped companies. And that was one of the things that, you know, that I taught myself in my first years because when I started investing, I always bought hyped stocks, right? Um, because it just felt good because everyone was buying them and everyone had good reasons. And you know, I was 17, 17, 18 um, at the time. And it just, I, mean, I get the appeal, right? Of, of buying hyped stocks because you think you're doing the right thing because you know, everyone agrees with you. But you get confirmation uh, continuously. Confirmation bias, exactly. And so that was one of the things that really taught me a lot. and. I haven't had any struggles um, in the past few years with, you know, of course I have temporary underperformance, but I know that my strategy, you know, di buying dividend growth companies will will bear fruit over time and uh, empirical evidence, you know, approves this. And so I'm, I'm really happy with my strategy to focus on a hybrid between growth and value. And, and do you see this as a long-term strategy or are you constantly checking the macroeconomics and, and that environment and ready to pivot at any time or is are you now going to say i'm dividend growth and that's the strategy i'm following for i don't know 20 years or so yeah so i mean the basic of my strategy is to buy dividend growth stocks and i say um, dividend growth is always in in parentheses because I, I buy some stocks that are not necessarily dividend growth stocks like energy companies um but that that's my cost strategy to just buy great companies at prices that i think are undervalued so but to come back to macro um i incorporate macroeconomics in almost every decision so um, in a certain environment i look you know what do i expect from the market in the next few quarters um and what's where, where should i add right but for, for example uh, right now i'm i'm interested in in beating down energy stocks i buy some real estate companies but we can get you know into depth to that later but um 
what I don't do is I don't sell stock. So if I decide that a company is right for me, I currently have uh, 20 stocks in my different growth portfolio. Um, I keep them. So when I bought cyclical stocks like railroads, for example, or, or Caterpillar in 2020, I knew I was getting a good price, which turned out to be true. But I also knew that I was going to, to experience multiple economic downswings in the future, right? So, I mean, God willing, if I get to invest for another, I don't know, 40, 50 years, um, I hope 50, more than 40, <laughs> but um, um, I know I'm going to experience a lot of down cycles in the economy. Um, so I only buy companies that I know that, that will withstand these, these down cycles, um, mm -hmm. because I'm not going, at least I'm very, very, very unlikely to sell them in down cycles. I mainly incorporate macro into my buying decisions. Um, mainly to just avoid, as we, you know, at the, at the start of this podcast, we talked about, you know, a lost decade, you know, I'm really thinking about this lost decade. Um, and in this scenario, I'm very, very unlikely to buy growth stuff. For example, I wouldn't buy Apple at these levels, um, to give you an example. So that's how I, how I incorporate macroeconomics into my, into my strategy, which is mainly based on buying undervalued different growth stocks, if that makes sense. Yeah, my experience is also because I did this since 2014 is that every stock come, comes one time into value zone in, 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 let's say, five, six years. There's always somewhere ahead when not not every company has a has a streak that that is just all the time continuing. Um, so I, I have a, quite some Apple because, I don't know, in 2017 or 2016, the iPhone was dead. That was the whole narrative. Nobody, who, who wants still an iPhone? Right, so it was trading at a thirteen multiple at the time, and um, I, I mean it, it was an amazing. And then after I bought it, Buffett started buying it, and then then everyone started to say, say again, "Oh wait, no, iPhone is uh, is great because yeah, he had a nice story about it." Yeah, exactly. And I, I think even I think I don't know if it was twenty sixteen. I think Carl Icahn got involved, and yet I think he mm -hmm. tweeted he had, he had dinner with um, with Tim Cook to to talk about stock buybacks. And I, I think I don't know exactly when Apple started to buy back stock. Yeah, but it was also around that time. Yeah. Yes, yeah. I, I think that. I mean, I, I didn't buy Apple back then. I mean, um, but yeah, as you said, and I think understanding a company is very important. So that's also, and for example, macroeconomics again, um, higher rates, right? Okay, rates have risen quite consistently since last year. So what happened? Real estate investment trust went down. Even the, even the solid ones like realty income. Um, so it's always, um, you know, and that's why I tell people if you don't really, I mean, you don't have to be a macro genius. I'm not, I'm far from a macro genius, very far. Um, but if you don't really understand what moves your stock, then you should always stick to ETFs, right? Because as you said, you, you knew why Apple was down and you knew what you were getting into when you bought it. And that's that's what, what I incorporate into every decision. I know that my railroads are down 20 to 30% because of the of the downswing in in, in manufacturing demands, right? And in related, I, I own one railroad with a lot of intermodal demand, which means it's highly tied to consumer, to the consumer. And so I knew when, when the Michigan consumer confidence started to implode that it would have a material impact on that railroad, which you know happened. Yeah. Um, I didn't sell it because it's a long-term investment, but I did buy more when it was really cheap. Um, so that, that's how I think it's just all about buying decision and what to expect and also that's what I tell people. You really need to understand the companies that you buy, and and I don't mean you know, knowing 
the name of every board member that when they went to school and um, how many employees they have and, and, and all that stuff. It's just about what moves the stock, right? We all know the factors that move the stock market, like liquidity and all these things, but what moves the stocks that you own? Because the differences between stocks are so huge. I mean, you have growth stocks that absolutely fly when inflation comes down and even growth. You have different stocks like Altria, you know, um, cigarette companies that that only do well when, when people rush into safe haven stocks that, that come mm -hmm. with a yield. Then you have cyclical stocks in, in energy that, you know, performed horribly until the, until the first year after the pandemic. So all these factors are quite complex and it's not always yeah. easy for people to understand. But that, that's where that's where I like always to to think about Peter Lynch, right? Buy yes. products, uh, buy buy companies, uh, stocks of companies from which you at least have a bit of affinity with their products. That makes it also for me sometimes harder to to think about U.S. stocks like Walgreens or CVS. Mm. I, I I just don't understand why why and also Home Depot. I don't own it because I don't understand how this works if you think about europe this is totally different uh here when you look at the you know you have a few like hornbach and such castorama mm -hmm. but still it feels like the culture around it of, of of home improvement looks totally different i mean we for god's sake we buy we build houses here with cement and bricks like like here in poland probably a, a half meter thick wall sometimes well okay let's say 30 centimeters and there often when you look at these programs it's just some 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 wood yeah with yes some, that's with some... that's absolutely true um i think that there was there were two sides to that um i mean people in general say don't get married to the stock that you own well i mean that ship has sailed for me but i'm, I'm not naive right i mean i love every investment that i have i think absolutely fantastic companies but i'm not i would still sell them if something were to happen right but i think you should invest in, in Incomes that you are passionate about, but not for the wrong reasons. I mean, way, a lot of people bought stocks like um, what's the latest drone manufacturer, um, GoPro, and they don't they make good drones. Um, these camera producers they bought GoPro because they think it's a cool brand, which didn't work out for them. Uh, and yeah, so this many... home, this bike uh, company, how was it called again? That you could bike from home? Oh, um, they give you a tablet with it. Yeah, exactly. They they glue a tablet to a to a stationary bike. Um, yeah. <laughs> a peloton. Yeah, peloton. Yeah, yeah exactly. So I think <laughs> I, I think it's uh, I think I mean there's a flip side to this. People uh, okay, I mean I need to go step one step in general. I tell people who are not that experienced with stocks, buy an ETF, right? Because most people who are not that experienced would be much better off just owning an ETF. And if you let's say you have a hundred grand, okay, let's just invest. What do I care? 90, 90, 90 grand in an ETF yeah. and ten grand in stocks that you're passionate about. You know, if if you fail, you have an expensive lesson, but you didn't ruin your financial future. Um, but when it comes to you know investing what you're passionate about, I, I would say combine passion with knowledge. I mean, invest in industries that you understand. Because if you decide for yourself to hold stocks for a few decades, you're going through a few cycles that you yeah. So your stock is probably going to tank 20, 30, 40% at some point. And yeah. it, I, you should to, know a bit of accounting, basic accounting and, and these kinds of things to read a balance sheet. Yes. To, to understand yes. a bit uh, what, what, what the catalyst is for a company and such. We, we often say on the show, like you can't borrow conviction. It's nice when the price goes up, 
but you, your your investment thesis gets tested when the price goes down and and that's where you really need to have strong conviction about uh, your your buy decision and, and I, I really see this in my own portfolio i mean in 2020 2021 when everything was just going up every day um it was just an easy ride but when things started to go south i mean i didn't obviously didn't panic but that's really you you spend more time thinking about how safe are the investments that I have? You know, what if rates remain elevated for for, for five more years? Um, how safe are the balance sheets? And as you said, yeah. you don't need to be an accounting genius. I'm, as I said, I'm, I'm far from an accounting genius, but people need to understand, you know, what what happens if, if your company has a, a four times leverage ratio or five times some, um, if it pays 8% on its debt. Um, uh, the other day I looked into a real estate company um, and the balance sheet was just horrible. I think they may may go out of business, and at least if, if rates are elevated. And most people might might miss this. And I think that's one of the biggest tricks. So people should have some basic knowledge and really understand yeah. the industry that they invest in yeah. and the company. Because in Europe, if you buy, for example, um, BMW cars, um, this stock has done pretty well on a total return basis. But it it had some very steep sell-offs, and most of these happen to the recessions when people don't buy cars. Um, and if you understand that the company is financially healthy and will bounce back because it sells cars that are more luxurious than just average consumer car, um, uh, you, you, you'll, you'll be fine in the end. And I think that's very yeah. important. And Leo, you mentioned uh, earlier about ETFs, right? Something yes. we struggle with is finding ETFs, UCITS, available to the retail investors yeah. with a dividend growth profile. Because most dividend ETFs that exist, when you analyze them, they had flat dividends for years, unreliable, not nicely growing. And yes. if you get, let's say, the the Vanguard equivalent, it's like one point four percent or something like that. Uh, yeah. So, so how, what is your perspective on ETFs being, let's say, in the Netherlands or Germany, um, and and then thinking about, yeah, dividend growth investment uh, as a practice or as an investment uh, style. Yeah, actually, I'm, you know, one of the things is uh, the selection of dividends in Europe is obviously, as you said, quite limited. And also, I, I think most ETFs have elevated expense ratios. Um, I mean, yeah. in the US, I can buy VU or SPY or even VIG, you know, the, the dividend growth ETF yeah. from, from Vanguard. I can buy it, I think, four or five or even lower basis points expense ratio, right? So that's almost neglectable. Um, but SCHD from Schwab, we can't buy here unless we do some complicated tricks uh, yes, by SCHD option selling. Yes, fantastic yeah. example. It's, it's, if, it's a fantastic ETF. And I would, you know, I once wrote an article on, you know, this is again in the US, but just 50% SCHD and 50% uh, S&P 500 or 50% dividend growth or just pure pure growth. Um, but in Europe, it's, it's a bit different. I mean, in general, you know, people that I advise, people who I advise in, in Europe, they mainly stick to S&P 500 um, ETFs or even uh, the global, um, the Vanguard global ETF, um, all world. Um, and there is an ETF uh, which which focuses on, it, it's it's not close to SGHD, but it, it owns, um, I think it's iShares, iShares US dividends. I don't know if it's I, if it has growth in its name, but it, it owns, um, Home Depot, it owns 
uh, Walmart, you know, all these all these names that SACT uh, owns as well. And that's an ETF that it has a 25 basis points expense ratio, which is, I mean, my limit. I wouldn't go higher than that, mm -hmm. but it's it's one of the best dividend growth ETFs in in Europe and, and beyond this. I mean, if you really want to go high yields like SHD, we don't, at least I haven't found a very good ETF in Europe. Um, I think, uh, not I think Van Eck has one, but I'm not sure. Yeah, yeah, Van Eck is decent. But then if you look at the total return, if you would look at that, then yeah. nothing really shows up. And then I'm with you, you could better probably say, you know, let's take the S&P 500 because I believe, I don't know, that in two decades from now, the US will be uh, still strong, still uh, yeah. growing generally faster than other economies in the world. So they should also therefore grow the index, right, uh, above average. Yeah, and, and I mean, if you look at S&P 500, I mean, they are now heavy in, 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 in FANG stocks, but in general, these are also the, the dividend growth stocks that, I mean, the, the companies that grow their dividend. Um, so yeah, I mean, SP 500 or the all world ETF, this is always, you know, the way to go for European investors. But as you said, you really need to be careful when you, when you go for higher yields. I know that, I'm not sure if it's iShares um, or what the ticker is. I mean, I, it, it's a long time ago since I looked into it, but it has a yield of like four or 5%. And if you look into its top holdings, it's all banks, insurance companies. Um, and these companies, you know, as you mentioned, the total return is just very, very poor. And that's a horrible way to get high yield exposure. Um, so and the that's... dividends get often cut there in the ETF. So you see this as well. as well. And then you have regul regulatory stuff. I mean, I wouldn't buy banks in Europe. I think one of the biggest issues in Europe is still breakup risk. I mean, it's a while ago since we had the Euro crisis, right? But political risk and, and these breakup risks are still very, very much elevated. So I'm not a huge fan of investing with these tail risks, right? But yeah. that's just personal. I mean, I don't want to yeah. keep anyone from investing in Europe. Just you know, know what the risks are and just be careful where you put your money. So, yeah. so where where do you see the best opportunities right now? So, right now, yeah, I I actually um, had a tweet. I said early in this book, I have a pinned tweet on my Twitter where I said, I mean, in a scenario where I think inflation could be sticky on a prolonged basis. I mean, let even if you get a recession, inflation would come down, obviously. But I think inflation could rebound rather quickly if when economic demand rebounds as well. You have, um, I mean, energy companies aren't producing, at least aren't growing their output at, at, as much as they used to. They're focusing on free cash flow instead of production growth. You have labor shortages that are really persisting in certain areas. Um, supply chain reconfigurations from China away from, not entirely away from China, but you see that companies are bringing back um production that's that's inflationary so i think in general inflation could remain elevated on a prolonged basis um and when you're dealing with you know lofty valuations in s p 500 and i mean as i said europe is different story but the risks are also different um i would i would i stick in my personal account i i, I buy energy companies um for example um, canadian natural resources i really like companies that produce loads of free cash flow when energy prices are elevated. Um, I also think the total return in general for energy companies will be very good in the next 10 years. Um, I'm buying undervalued cyclical stocks right now because you know we had, and we are still in a downturn. I'm not saying this is the end of the downturn, but because we have been in a prolonged economic downturn 
some cyclical stocks like Caterpillar, although Caterpillar, I would like it to fall a bit lower. Railroads that I own, they have come down 20, 30%, and I'm buying these companies. Um, I also invest in defense companies. In this case, not defensive, but you know, defense mm -hmm. and, and aerospace. I think, not necessarily because I, I expect war to multiple wars in the future, but I think these companies, they have, they have good pricing power because of, uh, of government contracts. They have anti-cyclical demands because it's just the biggest risk are supply risk, which is why some of them are still mm -hmm. so cheap. Um, so I'm buying defense companies. Actually, in my top five, I own four defense companies, which is how, that's how much uh, I invested in them in the past few quarters. Um, I think high yield investments in general are interesting, just, but invest, investors need to be careful. I'm not saying just high yield in general. There's so much trash on the, on the market when it comes to high yield. But if you, Howard Marks uh, you know, wrote a memo, he said, uh, we are witnessing a sea change. And that's basically you know, my fees as well, just elevated inflation and rates will be higher for long. And in that scenario, you, you want you know, income stocks. And I think he, he made the case that people should buy high yield bonds. I'm not I'm not a bond invest. I like equity, but I think higher yielding companies uh, are way to go. Which is why I like certain real estate companies. Uh, I like extra space storage, for example, in, in real estate, public storage, certain industrial REITs. I want to buy if they drop another 10, 15 percent. Um, but I think in general, in the next 10 years, that a big part of the total return will come from uh, dividends. dividends. Yeah. Right? I mean. I don't, I don't have the number at the top of my head, but in the past 10 years, the total return that came from dividends was rather low because you had low inflation. Everyone was piling into... I think something like 20% only. Yeah, yeah. But I think in the next 10 years, a much, yeah. much bigger part of the total return is going to come from dividends. I may be wrong. And even that, that's always when I always say, you know, I will never rely on a thesis that could prove costly as I'm wrong. So I wouldn't... I would never say like, okay, I'm bearish the market. I want, I will go all in on cash. If I'm wrong, I'm going to miss like a few years of yeah. available gain. So I'm not, I will never put myself in, in a position where I, if I'm wrong, I lose a lot. So even if I'm wrong, um, let, let's say we go back to a normal situation pre-pandemic, uh, tech stocks do well, value stocks do moderately well. I will probably, well, actually, the stocks that I own now, own now, they outperformed the market in the past 10 years as well. So I think, in general, I'm playing it safe. But um, I would, compare to 10 years ago, I probably own more energy, more high yield. And, and even, you know, just to, be, just to be safe, own some beaten down growth stocks. In this case, you know, defining growth is a bit tricky. But I like, for example, uh, DHR is a ticker, Deneher in, in healthcare, mm -hmm. uh, Thermo Fisher. These companies, um, I consider them growth stocks. They're not typical growth stocks. They're not, you know, high tech. Um, although I think they are high tech uh, in 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 the areas that they, that they service. You know, these companies are really interesting to me. I think you know, if inflation is indeed persistent, they may underperform. But these are still the companies that I want to add on on great yeah. prices because I think in the next few decades they will do very very well. So that's essentially what I wrote down for myself. So for instance, energy, undervalued technicals, defense companies, high yield, beaten down growth, like like healthcare. Yeah, when you when you say energy, so I own my largest position is Shell. Mm 
Mm. I bought uh, a lot uh, in 2020 when it was down, mm. but also uh, in the aftermath of the oil, oil crisis in 2016. Um, but I always feel like I buy oil as an example, really when when it's every day in the news. When CNBC has the whole day oil in the news and is talking the whole day about the oil price, I know it's time to look into oil stocks. Usually when, when this is not happening, it means that the price is elevated, there's some stress in the market, and uh, those are good times yeah, to, to, to be in Shell because of the cash flow. But mm. if you want to get like the undervaluation, that's usually for me over the last nine years has been the signal uh, that, okay, now is the time to really look closely at those. I mean, I cannot disagree with you because I think um, obviously these energy companies, uh, they were beaten down quite a few times. And that's when you want to go you know, really big into energy. Uh, yeah. So 2020 for, for a client, for a high net worth client and his fund, we, we went really big into agriculture, um, mm -hmm. which, was, which is highly correlated to energy. Um, but there was a difference. I mean, I bought most of my energy in 2020. So I'm sad when it comes to, you know, getting the biggest gains already. but um it's different energy is not in the same situation as it was 10 years ago um 2015 happened because of the u.s shell revolution these companies were producing yeah. so much oil and they were all energy independence exactly yeah. energy and and when trump came into office yeah. it was um it started again i mean it, it, they really started to heat up things in 2014 and um that's when you know demands up to weaken global manufacturing crisis oil started to plummet um, and some companies went bankrupt, but in order to repair the balance sheets, co all companies decided to produce even more. So mm -hmm. after this oil crash, oil production exploded again. Yeah. And when when COVID hit, you know, oil I mean, all went negative. But just you know, the front month went negative. But that, that's how bad it got, right? So, but now there's a different situation. These companies are, are saying there were two reasons. I mean, on companies are saying we need to be more careful with our free cash flow because of the many headwinds like uh, governments um, activists they all want energy companies to produce produce less for environmental reasons um and then you have you know inventory depletion right so the shell revolution is really coming to an end so these companies yeah. so they are running out uh, of and 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 companies have been under under investing yeah they're, they've uh, yes, highly they slashed their capex so yes. Yes, capex has been capex is severely subdued. I think they need trillions to actually get back yeah. to to actually get to a level where they can service future demand. But as I said, you know, some of these companies are now running out of tier one inventories in in in, in major shale basins. Um, so that's one of the reasons why why they are emphasizing free cash flow growth over production growth. So, but obviously, I mean. If the economy gets really, really bad, you could still see fifty dollars oil, and and much lower oil equities. But yeah. I think the situation has changed. That OPEC has regained pricing power. So OPEC is they are now protecting eight eighty dollars brand is you know what people say that they yeah. are really looking for to protect. Uh, obviously, we could go to seventy, maybe sixty five. But I think everything in the low seventies. Or even mid 70s is, is what i would gradually add to my energy investments but, yeah, but obviously if you really want to go big into energy i mean we could easily see 10 very very strong years for energy 
Um, but we won't likely see the opportunities that you had with, with Shell in 2016. No, no, and, and you you make a very good point there. So, so in my opinion, my, my thoughts about energy, I'm long ter long term bullish. Um, mm. I think that uh, the whole how you said the ESG narrative. I think I think that we've also that you also slightly referred to right when you said activists and such. Mm. Um, um, in in this sense, has always been talking about peak oil peak oil has been shifting a lot yeah. uh, as well and and for me it's really clear look they have been under investing in the industry the the reserve levels are have been actually slightly declining with the big five uh, over the last several years so at a certain moment they will need to um i would say start investing again but at that moment i think oil will be also much more expensive um here because the investment case also needs to be there and if yeah. you look at inflation and and what it costs to to uh how is it um to to find oil and to also then um build everything these are seven eight years long projects so you, you need to start yesterday to 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 be able to get it in eight years from now right yes so there's the, 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 the like to your point there's a, a really nice setup but for me someone who's already like having the biggest allocation to energy in the portfolio i don't need more i just reinvest the dividends but yeah. if i would be like a starter now i will probably nibble in here and there uh the yields are decent enough and and the dividends are uh, safe at the moment yeah for the at least for the foreseeable future yeah i think what you say you know nibble that's in general what I what I tell people when, I mean, obviously we're at this at this tricky point in the cycle where, where the stock market in general isn't very isn't trading at a great valuation. Yeah. So even if you find a stock that has great value, and the market goes goes south like 10, 50 percent, you will probably lose money on that one at least temporarily. Yeah. Um, so that's why I tell people just buy gradually, right? If if you just buy a small position and add over time, if the stock drops i mean you can average down which is a great strategy for long-term investors for trading probably not so much mm -hmm. you know that's not who we are targeting um and if it goes up all of a sudden uh, you have a foot in the door so in general in in market situations like the one that we are witnessing now um, i really prefer to just buy gradually and just build positions slowly yeah. Cool. Um, it, it's it's almost been an hour. It's been um, we could probably talk for at least another hour more, but we might finish up with one last question. Mm -hmm. um, and for me, that is, what has been your biggest or your main learnings, I suppose, over your investing journey? I think the most important thing that I have learned is to really to focus on long-term investing. I think, in general, I mean. I trade a little bit, but just on the side, but I've almost every penny invested in long-term investments. Um, sorry, focus on focus on great companies, buy them at great valuation, and just don't worry too much about it. I think all people overthink everything and not just retail investors, but it happens among professions as well. Everyone, I mean, everyone is freaking out when there is a new interest rate decision. Everyone wants to pre exactly predict the rate cycle. Everyone wants to predict inflation correctly. There is absolutely no need to do this. I mean, people who, are, who make millions every year have some some of the most horrible predictions, and yet they still make good money, right? Um, so I think I mean just focus on what works. In in my case, that's long term investing. I I mean last time I, I day traded this, I don't even remember so so long ago. Um, focus on what works. Stick to great companies, um, and avoid the noise. Just 
look look at the big picture and that that's that's really what what, what taught me well and why i sleep so well well, Leo, talking about sleeping well, I should just mention with your investment strategy, we actually got a, a question from one of our listeners called uh, Tadeusz. So maybe we, let's go to the lessons questions with this also straight away. And he asking, he's actually asking like, how many hours do you sleep on average? Because you, you're really like writing sometimes two or three articles a day on Seeking Alpha, uh, if I saw it correctly. So yeah we just had to add the, we just had to ask this question leo because this is like a production we have never really seen before um <laughs> um yeah actually it, it's two sometimes you know i, I cope do something with bread and i obviously have different work you know on the side so um if that's not all i do so it's even more but i sleep well i sleep i think it's like it, it's probably seven hours um eight if i have a good night but if i get seven to eight eight hours i'm i'm happy um and i get it most of the time um because i have a really clear schedule when i work and the reason why i produce or why i'm able to produce so much is it's just planning and i think focusing on companies that i understand um and just you know after a while you really get used to um you know researching these companies you know what, what am i looking for um what do people want to know because i mean there's a there's a big difference between doing an overview of a company focusing on, on earnings or just um doing a deep dive for a 400 million dollar investment right for special clients so yeah. um i mean these take weeks but in general um it's just it's just planning it, it, it's all planning um, and i do put in a lot of hours i think i probably outwork most people but um it's just it's just a passion um we'll see how long it lasts but um for now i'm i'm quite happy i hope so for 50 years uh, leo oh yeah years. i mean i mean she can yeah. find in this case but uh, it's uh, yeah i mean and that, that's what i said i think someone asked me um what would i do if i would make 10 million tomorrow well i would probably still be doing what i'm doing now so um yeah. I'm, I'm quite happy with what i'm how things are going Cool. And uh, the same the same guy has asked a couple of more follow-up questions, actually. Mm -hmm. And one of them is, what is your background? Um, is it economics, business school? Um, yeah. What? So, um, I don't know if I mentioned it, it earlier in the talk, but I have a background in, um, well, I studied uh, both a bachelor and a master's international business administration, and I, I do have a focus. Um, I, I minored in aerospace, aerospace management and operations. And I later did a focus to my, my master's on, on supply chain with with uh, finance. So that's, I mean, I'm not I'm not a f the finance professional. I mean, you probably know from your from like I'm not I'm not a typical analyst. I'm I'm basically my I'm I'm an equity and mm -hmm. and and macro strategist, as I said uh, on LinkedIn. <laughs> but it's um, I'm just a, a big picture guy. So I look um, I look for bigger trends, macroeconomics, supply chain developments, and just find investments that go with it. And as I said, you know, I do have some background in finance, so I, I, I obviously do know how to read balance sheets and understand companies. It's just, um, I would say, some some of everything, and just I and I just managed to combine it and turn it into you know, valuable information for you know a wide variety of uh, of readers and, and interesting interested parties. Yeah. And then um, he's very interested in your uh, allocations in your portfolio, so. For instance, how much energy, if you look at your portfolio versus under value cyclical, is this something you feel okay to disclose? Yeah, I mean, um, I, I I can obviously dis disclose my, uh, my allocation. I I think mm -hmm. I covered it in a recent article. Um, 
so I have my, my, my biggest sector in this case is industrials. Um, I have more than 50% exposure to industrials. But in this case, I mean, industrials in general are cyclical. But 27% of my portfolio, which is roughly half of my industrial exposure, is aerospace and defense. So I have more than a quarter of my money in, in aerospace. Yep. I have like 15% in, in freight and lo logistics, which is mainly railroads. Um, I, I have 11% in, in real estate and in, in REITs, which I'm looking to boost. I have in my different portfolio 10% in oil and gas, but I do have in my trading portfolio energy exposure as well. So that's roughly, I know, half of, of the 10% I would add. I've and, and then it, it gets more, more moderate. I've like yeah. you know, six 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 percent in machinery, which is John Deere, at least Deere and Company and Caterpillar, home builders, um, which is at least home building supplies, which is Home Depot, PepsiCo. And then it just really I think the average uh, size that comes after it's like four percent. Yeah. So it's yeah. I'm really what interesting is what's interesting to people, twenty seven percent defense, fifteen percent railroads, ten uh, percent reeds and oil each. Um, so that that's pretty much my, my biggest uh, allocation awesome awesome um the next question is from cohen um and he is also on seeking alpha european dj is laughing at me because i definitely pronounced that name wrong um but he's known on seeking alpha as the dutch dividend therapist um and he's a follower of yours a big admirer and he's wondering have you got any tips for a beginner um on how to i suppose grow their seeking alpha account i mean it's i mean seeking alpha growing seeking alpha has come way more difficult because you know i started in 2015 i believe so that's a long time ago and then it was much easier to grow on seeking alpha um and one of the problems that seeking alpha is like like so many companies is on one hand competition is getting worse um substack um, social media in general and and everyone has just their own website with research um and then you have you know in general more people have started to contribute right so there were articles on everything and it's really hard to find an edge um but if you if you want to grow an audience then i would say focus focus on quality and on your expertise and it, it sounds i know it, it sounds so obvious but it's really it's really true i have noticed people people who, who gain the most followers and and keep these followers on a long-term basis are really the people who who stick to stick to what works in my case i developed this into into dividend growth um with a macro edge so i, I most of the time talk talk about macro and all these things and that's really i believe this has given me an edge right so i think some people cover i don't know they only cover energy some only cover healthcare. And that's fine. Just find out what works for you and really excel at what you do because competition is fierce. And even, even if views are really bad at the beginning, you will you will go into it. I mean, it took me, I don't know, I think it took me like five or six years until I had I had some decent views and a decent audience. Um and as I said, you know, growing this is only only becoming harder. So focus on what, what works for you and your strengths. Um develop this and and it will take time, but eventually you will you will figure out um, how, to, how to accelerate audience growth and I, I use i use twitter as well and you will just build a more interactive audience which is the most important thing and 
I always say, if it wasn't for the comment section on Seeking Alpha, I would I would have left Seeking Alpha a long time ago. But I just think it's a fun experience for me as well, which is why I'm still doing it. And obviously, on Seeking Alpha, I met Brad, and we're doing some. We are working on some great things. Um, and just you know, as I said before, I, before this answer gets too long, just focus on what works, on what works for you. Um, what are your qualities and strengths, and just really deliver top-notch research don't try to just compete on volume but really try to compete on on quality it may be hard at the beginning but it will really pay off and especially with ai just around the corner um if you don't have an edge you will make it in in i would say third-party research cool good advice um ronnie has asked us um about the healthcare sector in general um he's increased his position in rush um but how would you explain the current correction in the health sector um how would i explain um the correction healthcare yeah um well it depends i mean i'm not familiar with with rush i, I focus on different areas of, of healthcare but in the past few few quarters actually we have i've done a lot of research on, on biotech um healthcare suppliers like Adenaher, but also Produce of devices like um, Abbott, uh, Dexcom, etc. So it's it's not really easy to say that there is one main driver behind healthcare weakness. I would say um, in companies like Denner, so healthcare suppliers, and even companies like Abbott, um, they have suffered because um, of post-pandemic. Uh, uh, of the post-pandemic uh, demand decline, right? These companies did very, very well during the pandemic when demands for research tools and even just healthcare in general was very, very high. And so investors priced in a lot of growth. And now we are seeing, um, for example, Abbott, to name one company, um, they produce testing kits and obviously these are not, not needed anymore. So they're seeing a pretty big decline in, in core revenue growth, at least not only a decline in growth, but actually contraction. So that's one of the reasons why investors aren't that keen on investing in, in these healthcare companies. And also you have these GLP-1s, these weight loss drugs. And people thought, you know, with these weight loss drugs coming to market, um, there's a lot less demand for healthcare in general because I think um, obesity is like a driver of, of many, many illnesses like heart failure, cancer, blood pressure i mean you name it all the all these things are just tied to um, obesity and investors figured you know if obesity is going away which isn't happening but you know just to say if, if it becomes less um these companies will see deteriorating long-term growth opportunities which hasn't turned out to be the case as i expected but it was one of one one major factor why some healthcare companies didn't perform so well but in general i think healthcare opportunities can be used i'm buying Denner, as i said i like abbott um i i like some i like a lot of the uh, medical uh, device producers so for example um Resmed, respiratory medicine um they produce um breathing support respiratory as the name already said uh, support tools and dexcom they produce insulin uh, tools and all these things i really like these companies so I've actually been bullish on, on a lot of healthcare companies. I think weakness should actually, is absolutely an opportunity in this sector. Okay, cool. Yeah, nice answer. Um, the next question is from BTO5, and it is, 
from uh, he's asked us mr charlie says the first 100k is a um and he's crossed out the word there um but what is your opinion when do you start feeling the rolling effect um of compounding i suppose um yeah the, 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 it, it's a tricky one i, I think it's i think it, it's it, it, it's a personal thing right um i mean if you i think in general if people just invest whatever they they can that that's a good start um I mean, if you do 100 euros a month, for example, um, it will take a while until you make a difference, right? In one year, it's 1,200. After 10 years, it's 12 grand, just, you know, without interest in, in gains. Yeah. Um, so it, it will probably, you know, take take 20 years until until stock market fluctuations actually make a difference to you financially, at least to an extent where you can you know, say, yes, I am protected against my job loss or whatever. Um, but to me, you know, when I had, I when I at 20 grand, for example, I really I, I felt that it was a lot, right? Because one percent of 20 grand is 200 euros. And back then, you know, my, my job, um, I was bartending, uh, you know, didn't pay that well. So in comparison, it was a lot of money. Um, but then you, you go to 50 to 100, 150, 200, etc. Um, I don't I think I, I stopped feeling a difference. I think when I, when I crossed 100, I felt okay. Wow, this is really something, but everything since hasn't really made a difference to me. Like at least emotionally. I mean, obviously, if you have one hundred or two hundred grand, that's a big difference financially, but not emotionally. At least not to me anymore. Um, I just, I just really like what I'm doing. And as I said, I don't. I wouldn't even care if it's a hundred million or a billion. Um, at some point, it just doesn't matter. And the most important thing for people to remember is just invest whatever you can build something for yourself and actually enjoy doing it because some people i mean if you invest every excess penny that you can spare until you are 70 well i mean odds are some of us don't make it to to 70 right and it would just be a waste so just enjoy enjoy what you're doing invest in great companies and and you will be fine you, you will enjoy even the compounding effects at you know at, at with small amounts so that's that's what i would tell people just don't don't fall for the comparison trap there's always someone richer there's always someone who who gets more dividends and especially don't focus on high yield dividends just because you want to make more dividends so many beginners fall for this they have like 10 10 grand to invest and they're they're still young they invest 10 grand and they invest it all in high yield stocks just because it pays them more dividends but it's just don't do it right. people just focus on growth stocks you know, depending on your age and just enjoy what you're doing you'll be fine or even worse they put the first uh, money in tsli uh, and and treat that as a dividend etf isn't that isn't it the covered the dividend uh, the covered core mm -hmm. etf from tesla the yes tesla? exactly yeah. and they see that tesla as dividend income yeah. then and you know i think it's more speculation than, than long-term investing absolutely so that's why people shouldn't fall for this you know yeah. i don't know when compounding makes it. i mean if you have expect if, if you if your annual expenses are like a 10 grand then you don't need to compound as much as people no true who have, who have expenses a year of 100 grand so mm. i mean just look for your own, own situation don't compare yourself to others and just have fun that, that's as yeah. easy as it gets and straightforward awesome um, and then the last question we have is around a company um, called Greencoat UK Wind. Um, you spoke a lot about actually 
energy what's your thoughts uh, before i ask the, the other question what's your thoughts on renewable energy um uh well i think i mean renewable energy is is fine but i know where this question is going but in general you know um solar panels for for certain houses makes sense but as a mass adoption of energy it's it's not a solution it's not a replacement for for coal and in oil um i think it, it's fine it's a niche technology because if you want to get the independent from russia when it comes to natural gas you cannot become dependent on china for rare earths to produce solar and i think wind energy is just ridiculous i mean if you look at how, how much metal goes into and concrete goes into one of these windmills um and they, they destroy the entire ecosystem in the north sea and all this i think i think nuclear energy is the way to go i'm not really keen on 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 renewables especially from an investment point of view because without subsidies this entire industry is toast yeah, very low margin yeah extremely low margin if yeah. you look at siemens wind and energy general electrics a division focusing on renewables is doing poorly with i mean i i do like i mean even though i invest a lot in oil and gas i i am not i'm not paid by the sector to say positive things about oh i'm definitely in favor of you know reducing pollution yeah but i think we need more efficient ways to achieve this yeah yeah, yeah. And, and i suppose that's why these are heavily subsidized at the moment because oh yeah no... without subsidies most of them will go bust yeah yeah so that's there but the, the question was for me it's about the charges that ukw um charged they're a closed-end fund are managed sort of management fees um of around 1.2 percent um which is not too bad for for one of those funds they, they pay a yield of around six percent so you need to take that off you're still getting around four percent yield from them so yeah typically with closed-end funds you we would expect to pay uh, roughly around one percent management fee for for these guys uh, you, you spoke a lot about etfs earlier um in ireland etfs are a, a bit of a pain um with tax we got higher taxes we also have this deemed disposal where you have to pretend to sell an etf even though you don't sell it every eight years and then every subsequent year and then pay capital gains on that so etfs are a pain whereas closed-end funds give you access to some of the same markets they also give you access to to a lot of different markets um out there as well public private sector a lot of companies um so from an irish perspective they make a lot of sense and and um for me 1.2 percent um is not too bad in, in terms of management fees for that yeah I, i've seen i think that makes sense for close-end funds i don't even know what what arc is what kate kathy woods is charging for her arc fund but i think it's it's like 70 or 80 basis points i'm not sure but yeah yeah a lot of a lot of these active funds are actually quite expensive so 1.2 yeah 1.2 percent yeah. for a decent close-end fund it's, it's, it's okay yeah um okay that's that's the last question um we might just finish up and ask you one more and if you were to pick one stock we normally do like a stock pick of the week um just your favorite stock what what would it be and does it i mean is this based on, on the short term is this the, the company that i believe has the most short-term potential okay it could be anything anything at all i actually thought about it because uh in my preparation but i think if i had to buy something right now i would probably buy you know what i would probably buy dion company stock stock ticker de 
the producer of agriculture equipment. Yeah. That would probably be oh, my go-to stock. They they have the best tractors in the world. Just yeah, I, I would say so. That. Yes. <laughs> so uh, I I have a family member uh, who was let's say farmer, and when they see deer, they stop. They want to touch it. <laughs> I, I like these yeah. these people. I, I, deer was actually one. It 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 was one of my biggest investments, and I haven't bought bought too much of it recently. So it has shifted a little bit to the downside, to the smaller part of my portfolio. But I think. There was um, it's a fascinating company, and they produce great tractors. They have great margins. Obviously, yeah. now with the manufacturing recession, they've been pressured. Which you know, it's 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 now a stock that I think I don't know exactly where they are trading right now, but I think on long term it's like a six hundred dollar stock. So that's I think seventy or eighty percent upside. At least that was I think in the next few years. Yeah, nice. Good, good, nice one. Um, Leo, thanks a million for for coming on the show. I have to say that that they were that we were speaking flew by. Um, we could have done quite a lot more. It's quite interesting take using macro um, and some of the factors that that you use to to make your decisions. Um, which is, as you said, it gives you an edge on seeking alpha, but it is quite unique as well in in our world. So um, it was actually quite quite enjoyable speaking to you. Well, thank you very much for having me. I I thought this was a fantastic uh, uh, fantastic talk. And yes, we could have gone on for a few more hours <laughs> but yeah. i think um yes i'm very very much looking forward to uh, to hearing the opinions Thanks. of your listeners and well i mean they can reach me on on twitter and seeking off and whatnot so thank you very much for having me guys it was so much fun thank you too leo and we'll make sure that we put all the links in the description of this uh, podcast uh, to your to your twitter profile seeking alpha profile also let us know after the show if there are other links that you would like us to add uh, where people can find you and uh, yeah, hey, who knows? Maybe let's see you uh, one time in the future again. I really enjoyed it. You're very insightful. You're uh, a book of knowledge. Uh, so yeah, it was a pleasure having uh, having you on the show. Thanks, Likewise. Thank, thank you very much, guys. Remember, both of us at Dave and Talk are not certified financial specialists through formal education. We are just two guys sharing our journey for inspiration and entertainment purposes. Hence, this is not investment advice. Although we do our best, we can't promise that the information discussed is always correct, nor appropriate for you or anybody else. We always recommend that you do your own due diligence and be accountable for your own choices. As we always say, you can't borrow conviction from others. Last but not least, by listening to our podcast, you agree to hold us harmless from any ramifications, financial or otherwise, that occur to you as a result of acting on information provided in this podcast.